Amen. Well, let me begin by kind of bringing us back to a time when uh, maybe, all, maybe all of us, maybe some of us, especially for those probably that uh, kind of grew up in the States here, but I want to bring you guys back to a time when I was in the fourth grade is, is what I remember. In fourth grade, and if you grew up in the States, you might have had to do something like this uh, that, that I did growing up in California. And in the fourth grade, our teacher would ha- have us do this book report uh, every now and then, every quarter or so, and you would read a book, and then you would have this particular activity or project that goes along with the book that you just read. And so oftentimes it would just be, you know, you would read a book and then you write a summary or a page about it. But every, every now and then the teacher would have you read a book and then have you do this thing called a shoebox diagram or a shoebox diorama. You guys have heard of this? Maybe you guys have seen this, all right? And, uh, and so I don't know if you guys um, did this when you guys were kids or maybe you didn't grow up in a culture that did things like that, but this is a picture, an example. This is not mine, okay, but an example of what a shoebox diorama might look like. And you can tell this is probably someone that wore Nikes because there ain't no orange poles in the jungle, okay? That's, uh, that's the box, uh, that's a Nike box, but inside this Nike box, they had decorated it and designed it and put some creativity and thought and, and, and crafts into it to, to build a story that actually reflects the book that they just read, okay? So I think, that, I think we have one more picture of a shoebox, okay? This is um, another one. This is, it kind of looks like a, just a piece of paper, but it's actually a shoebox, and they actually had to put that into the shoebox and, and design a set, if you will, and, and basically what they call this is, it's another way of saying a, a book in a box, a book in a box. And, and the whole purpose behind this is that, um, that when you were to talk about the book you read, it was one thing just to talk about it, just to say it or, or, or just to write something down, a summary or something like that, but it was another thing if people got a visual, if people were able to see something that reflects what you read. And I, and I bet even in my class, and maybe, maybe this is bringing you back to elementary, uh, and if you've done this before, uh, you probably know that there are some books that kids have read that aren't that fun, but their they're, they're shoebox made it look like the best book in the world, right? Maybe not, not the most, uh, you know, best-selling book, but the way they designed their shoebox may have attracted people to that particular story. And then I bet there are some stories and books that are like, that are just like, the top best-selling books out there for kids, stories that ki- all kids would love, right? But then, by the way they made their shoebox, it could look like the most boring story in the world. Like, who would want to read that story based on the shoebox? And so the whole idea was that you would put the shoebox together, you would put arts and crafts together, you would put thought into building a set, a model, a visual that represents the story that you were just in, right? And so it's a way for you to kind of sell the story you were in and draw people into your book. It's a book in a box. It reminds me of another activity that we did uh, growing up in elementary school. It's this thing called show, not tell. Show, not tell, okay? And show, not tell was basically a, um, a, a kind of a, a, a technique, a writing technique. And, and basically it was a descriptive writing technique where you would take a, a general statement, right, that, that could be unpacked and, and have a lot of emotion, but just a general statement doesn't, 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 um, doesn't kind of create any visual, doesn't stir any affections, but it's just a general statement. And what you would do in the show not tell is you would unpack that statement 
And you would add uh, uh, different words, uh, adjectives, maybe verbs, and you would create a short story where, where people can read that and actually picture something in their mind and maybe even feel something in their heart as they're reading that statement, all right? So let me give you guys um, an example. Okay, this is not mine, but this is just, uh, I found on uh, a, a reliable source called google.com. All right, this is show not tell. This is, uh, this is the telling version. This is the, this is the general statement. It says, Susie was nervous on her first day of school, okay? Now that's one way to say it. That's one way to tell it. But here's what showing is, okay? Here's what showing is. Showing is to say Susie's stomach nodded up as she sheeplessly, uh, sheepishly walked down the hall of what seemed like an enormously big school. She wondered if people could see her heart pounding out of her chest. What would people think of her? What would they say? Would she fit in at her new school? She stopped at the edge of her classroom door, considering turning around and running back home. Right. And maybe for some of you guys, as I read that, it might like bring you back to memories you guys had of your first day at school. I know for me, I'm not the most outgoing kid. You know, I tend to be more on the shy side. And so first day of school was very nervous for me. And, and when I read just that general statement, I'm like, okay, I think I can relate to that. But then when I... When I read the showing statement, the, the summary and the, with the added verbs and the adjectives and more description, I began to understand I can relate to that a lot more. And it began to stir affections. It, it began to give me a picture. I could almost visualize Susie in her class, in her classroom, wondering what, what people are thinking about her, right? And you just kind of, it kind of places you in, a, you know, in a position where you're able to see what she sees. You're able to feel what she feels. Show not tell. Some of you guys are wondering, man, why is Pastor James talking about elementary <laughs> um, projects and, and show not tells and um, shoebox diagrams? And the reason why I say this is because I began to realize as I study, as I read Titus chapter 2, we just read this for you all, it's talking about being an example of a good life, being an example of what the Christian life looks like when God touches your life, when Jesus changes your life, when the grace of God appears to you, when you are no longer who you are because of the grace of God, this is the kind of life that ought to appear, this is the kind of life that ought to be in the shoe box on display so that you're not just telling people about a story, but through your life, you become a living showcase, a living model, a living diagram that actually draws people deeper into your story where people say, I want to know more about that story because now it's attractive to them. Your life, what Titus 2 is saying is your lives, our lives, the church, we ought to live in such a way that adorn the gospel. In other words, what it's adorned to mean to make beautiful. Because it's easy, it's possible to take something that's incredibly beautiful, a great treasure, and then somehow make it not attractive to the rest of the world. And then we can do that with other things, the things that are in the world that aren't that great of a treasure, but we make it to be the greatest thing in the world. What are we drawn to? The question for us is, what kind of lives do we live? And, and, and are people drawn to, to the God that has appeared to us? Are we, are, are we living lives that, that draw people to, to Christ, to Jesus, wanting to know more about him? Not that we are the ones who save them, 
But are we, in a sense, helping them through our lives? Or are we putting stumbling blocks in their lives? That, that's what Titus 2 is really about. is to say we are, in, in a sense, we are the show, not just tell. It's one thing to, to, to have a passion to reach people in your, your neighborhood. Maybe you have coworkers, you guys have family members, maybe you have a close friend who doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus, and your heart burns for them, and you, you try to, you try to uh, know as much scripture, you try to find opportunities to talk to them about God and share your testimony, and I think that's powerful, and that's necessary. I think that's part of it, I think that's what God does want you to do and he's allowing you and empowering you to do that. But what if your telling came with a showing? What if your message came with a model? I would would bet for people that are not in the faith, I would bet for people because this is where I used to be because I came to know Jesus not from birth but I came to know Jesus at age 16. For 16 years of my life, I never fully agreed with Christians. I never fully believed in Jesus. And I remember at times I, I, I thought Christians were just silly, waste, wasting their time at church. I would try to find ways to uh, pick apart the Bible. And I, I think it's safe to assume that it's easier for people to argue against the Bible. It's a lot harder, though, to argue against your life. How do they argue against your testimony? How do, they, how do they dismantle how you live? They can't. They can say, oh, well, well, this, you know, that Bible, you can, you know, that, that verse, you can read it in different ways. Well, well, I mean, you know, in this version it says this, so does that really mean? But maybe it's more of a cultural thing. Maybe it doesn't apply to us today. And, and there are so many people even now that, that, that try to take apart the Bible, but they have a hard time taking apart your life because that's your life. And what Titus 2 is saying is your life, in other words, your action goes together with your faith. They're not two separate things. It's not to say that, well, we believe one thing, but my life, you know, it has no, has no impact, has no, has no interaction. What Titus 2 is saying is that our belief and our behavior go together, that our doctrine and our deeds go together, as James would say, that our faith, faith and our action go together, that it works together, that when someone has encountered the grace of God, There is something on display. There is a show, not just tell. Amen? There is is a model and a visual that when someone looks at your life, it's actually telling of a more beautiful story, not just yours. That when someone looks at your life, Titus 2 is saying, there is this, there is this opportunity and ability and there's, there's this, uh, in a sense, possibility that by, live, by the way you live your life in Christ, that you actually cause people to thirst and to hunger after this God that we believe. That's powerful. That's incredible. And so that, that's what Titus 2 is really saying. And so I want to begin here by giving you guys an understanding of where Titus 2 kind of uh, it, it begins. And Titus 2, it begins by saying, but as for you, but as for you. And so you got to kind of understand what, um, 
what he is kind of connecting here with. He's, he's, you gotta go back to Titus chapter one, the very last verse, and verse 16, it says that they profess, talking about these influential uh, teachers in Crete, uh, Cretan teachers who were really uh, teaching a doctrine, but really have uh, their motivation and their intention was selfish gain and, and maybe even self-promotion and, and, and such, and, but yet they had people that would follow, and follow them, and it was mixed up with the culture in Crete, and so it, it wasn't a pure gospel. It wasn't with a pure integrity. And so that's why Titus in chapter one spends a great deal about how the Christian church ought to affirm and appoint leaders and elders because they ought to look very different from these leaders in Crete. And so in verse 16, it says, they profess to know God. These Cretan teachers who had influence. Can you imagine these, these are, there's people that were following uh, so-called uh, um, God followers, and but but Paul here is saying that they profess to know God, but but they deny Him by their what? By their works. They they claim to know God, but there is no credibility in knowing God because their character is not commendable. Because their conduct says something different. It doesn't, it, how, do you, how do you get their conduct and how do you get their life? How does that match up with what they're trying to teach? So what, what Paul is saying is these are men who claim to know God and yet they deny God, they deny him by their works. They are detestable, they're disobedient and, and they're unfit for any good works. And that's gonna be important because in Titus 2 here, when in verse seven, Paul addresses Titus directly and he says, Titus, but here's what I want for you. Here's what I pray for you and hope for you, that you show yourself in all respects to be a what? A model, a shoebox, a showcase of good works. This isn't just good works for the sake of good works. This is good works that point people to the good news. When they say, how is it that you live your life like that? Then there is an opportunity by showing your life, now you can tell your story. Or better yet, by showing your life, you can tell God's story. To be a model of good works. And so this is where we pick up in chapter two. So he's telling Titus, but as for you, against the backdrop of Cretan teachers who were um, people who just really don't know God because their life just does not show it, right? They're unfit for any good works because they don't have God in their life producing that kind of good work. So he says, Titus, ask for you. And he's really talking to Titus so that those under Titus can hear the same thing. Ask for you, Titus, ask for you in the fellowship or in the churches in Crete, teach what accords with sound doctrine, okay? so. Here, um, Paul is, is saying to, to Titus, Titus, the people in Crete, right? Like when you're, when you're going around the island in Crete, they have seen what a Cretan life looks like. But now it's time that they see what a Christian life looks like. They have seen everywhere. They can, you don't have to go far to see what a Cretan life looks like. You don't have to go far to see what Cretan believes. You don't have to go far to see what Cretan is about. Crete is about. You can see it in people's lives. And Paul is encouraging and exhorting Titus and the fellowship in Crete to say, the church, 
ought to look very different from Crete. Christians are to look very different from Cretans. And so this is now Paul saying, Titus, I want you and I want the church to be a model and a showcase of what a Christian life actually looks like. That by our deeds, they can adorn or they can, they can be attracted to what we believe, right? It's faith with action, right? It's a life in which our conduct, uh, a life in which our character uh, commends our message. That when we begin to speak about Jesus, people actually want to listen because there's something about your life There's something about your speech. There's something about husbands, the way you go about your marriage and love your wives and children. And there's something about the way you go to work. There's something about you just live your life. There's something about your your self-control. There's something about your kindness. There's something about it that people just want to hear more. And so... Paul is saying, Titus, um, give them a picture of what the Christian life looks like. Teach them uh, in accord with sound doctrine. Right? And I know that in, in like normal life, no one talks about sound. No one says sound, right? right? But this word sound really means just healthy, right? Sound is to say healthy. And I, and I believe that what Titus uh, is trying to teach us here today is that when the church has healthy doctrine, then it actually leads to a healthy life. When you have unhealthy, or or the opposite would be a diseased doctrine, when you got all these errors and what you believe, and you're just picking apart stuff, and and you agree with some parts, but you're twisting some other parts, then then that's a diseased doctrine that leads to a a spiritually diseased life. But when you got a healthy understanding of God's word, that leads to a healthy, godly life. So this is what Paul is trying to teach Titus. And this is what Paul is trying to get Titus to teach to the church. Why? Because good news, all right, the gospel, the good news of God is not just meant to be told. It's actually meant for people to see. You know, when I came to Christ, I didn't come to Christ because Bible verses were so beautiful to me. You know, I came to Christ in, in, for a large part or a big influence or, or impact on my life was the Christians that I saw around me, was, was the way that these Christians lived their lives, the way that they had such joy, they were very counterculture to the, the rest of my group of friends that I had and, you know, and, and, and they weren't trying to be religious about it, they weren't trying to Bible bash me but they just lived a life that I knew, that I knew was different from mine. And it wasn't that I was bad and they were good. The difference was God. And I I knew that in my life, I didn't have God at that time, I just knew that they are people who know God. They, They are people that aren't perfect. I never believed that there was a perfect person, at least a perfect human, fully human person here. There's only one that's perfect, right? That's God who came to be a model for us. And then he sent his spirit for us so that we can model his life. And when I saw at age 16, when I saw my church with with a, a, a group of just random people 
loving each other, loving God's word, loving God in a way that I've never seen, that, that adorned the gospel. That, that was Titus chapter two, verse 10, that in everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God. When I saw how they treated one another, when I saw how they prayed for one another, when I saw how they loved each other, when I saw the joy that they had, it actually attracted me to know the God that, that they claim to know. It didn't repel me, it brought me in. It caused a thirst in me. It caused a hunger in me. This is what God desires for us. He wants to use you to bring others to Christ. But it's not by sharing convincing words, amen? It's not by being persuasive in your speech, amen? Paul even says, he says, I'm not the best speaker. I don't, I don't come with eloquent words, but I come in a demonstration of God's spirit. He's saying, Paul says in his letters, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He lives his life as a model, a showcase, a visual, so that people aren't just told about the Bible, people aren't just told about God, but they can actually see a picture of God through our lives. Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine, like, if you're going to work, you're going to the market, you're going to Starbucks, like we all go to gas station, go for a run in your, your neighborhood, and just imagine if you were a big picture frame where people can see God, right? Do they, do they see you and do they get, are they like, man, that's blurry. Do, do they see a picture of just, of just you and your career and your desires and your security? Is that, is that all they see? Or, or when you're at Starbucks and we were talking to you know, the banker, or when you're at, you know, at work and you're just having lunch with coworkers, do they, do they over time see, man, you know, I see a picture that I can't see in other places. I'm beginning to see a picture of Jesus. Could you tell me more? That's what, that's what Paul is trying to teach Titus today, or teach dear Titus and what God wants to teach us today. I love this, uh, this quote by D.L. Moody, who was a pastor and evangelist. He had a great ministry even here in Chicago. And uh, he says that he says, out of 100 people, one will read the Bible. He's talking about non, non-Christians. Out of 100 people, one would read the Bible, but the 99 will read the Christian. Out of 100 people, one will read the Bible. The 99 will read the Christian. They may not read a Bible, but they will read us. So that begs the question, what are they reading? And what are they seeing? Christians should not be people that make it hard for others to believe in God. Are we, are we awake today? Do y'all have coffee? That's a good place to say amen. All right? Christians, we ought not to be people that make it hard for others to believe in God. If they know you, it should be easier for them because they may not see Jesus directly, but through your life, they see a glimpse of him. And through your life, it's adorning the gospel. It's making the gospel, the, the good news, actually good news to them, right? We are the ones, the church, 
Brothers and sisters, we are the ones that help others to believe in God. Just before we even say a word, just by the intentionality of our lives to live a godly, good life before God and before others, to love God and to love others. Just by that alone, it actually helps people to believe in God. Now, Titus chapter two, uh, verse two, uh, all the way through verse 10, it actually goes into great detail about what Paul is actually wanting to see. Now he's gonna say, this is what it looks like. And and he begins to address all kinds of people. You know, last week, you might've thought that Titus was all about elders and leaders, but it's not. In chapter two, it shifts the focus from the leadership in the church, right, to now every brother, every uh, sister in the body of Christ, especially as it plays out in their home. This is the household now, the oikos, what happens in the home, also what happens in, you know, the private and the public life. This is now addressing not just those that are up for eldership, but this is addressing older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. You surely fall into one of those categories, right? You might be convinced that you're not in one, right? But you either fall into an older man or a younger man and an older woman or a younger woman. And then it addresses even bond servants, and that has a lot of contextual, um, practica- you know, practical application there, but I think it also speaks to us today. And so what we're not gonna do today is go through every single one, because I think the point is not to nitpick at every single one of these qualities and characteristics, but to look at it maybe from a, a, a distance to see what is it that God wants to see. And the answer is he wants to see an older man and, old, and younger wo- men, older woman and younger woman. He wants to see in all of God's people. He wants to see in every believer a model of what God is like. He says to the older men, okay, and a lot of these are just self-explanatory, so we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time on these older men. Be sober-minded. Be dignified, which means be worthy of respect. Self-controlled. And one way to look at self-control is the opposite of behavior that might be considered foolish, right? To be sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness, and endurance. He says, that, older men, that is something that you should really spend some time in thought, in prayer, going before God, in study, and in practice. He says, older men, think about these things. And then he goes on, older woman, okay? Likewise are to be reverent in behavior. And this just simply means that even older women ought to exemplify what a godly life looks like. Not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. And in almost every commentary I read, they, they say that when it says not slanderers or, or, or slaves to much wine, they actually put those two together because one kind of affects the other. You're right, when, when, when you're uh, intoxicated with too much wine, what happens is you, it, it results in a loose tongue right, and loose talk, and you say things that maybe you don't even remember, and you say things that you'll for sure regret, and you'll say things that aren't always building up, right? It's not like, hey, man, let me encourage you, but let me, before we do that, let me just drink this because that's how I, you know, if anything, it probably is going to lead you the other direction, and so I think it goes together uh, for the older, older woman, and I think especially because what the uh, older woman in the island of Crete 
are experiencing, are, are, uh, um, and I don't expect you guys to know all the uh, in-depth study on, on the context of Crete, but, but what you ought to know is that there was a movement and the shift in the, the, the woman in, in the island of Crete, a culture in which women were experiencing all kinds of liberties, all kinds of freedoms. And I think some of that could be healthy, some of that I think is, is something that we need to be advocates for, but not if it leads to ungodliness, not if it leads to damaging your relationship in your home and it damages your, your marriage and damages how you raise children, not if it damages the church, especially not if it makes people distant from the good news of the gospel. Paul is saying as older women live lives that are, draw people to the gospel. Draw t- people to, to the grace of God that has touched your life. It says to the older woman, teach. They are to teach what is good. Talking to the younger woman. Verse four, and so train the young woman to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Now I'm gonna stop there real quick because I know that has a, some cultural sensitivity, right? Working at home, okay, Pastor James, what does that mean? Working at home, it doesn't say, well, first of all, it doesn't say only working at home, amen, all right, to all the working women. It doesn't say only working at home. It doesn't, it doesn't suggest that women cannot have a career. It's not suggesting that at all, but it is suggesting that women who work at home ought to be held with great value. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to look at stay-at-home moms as if like they're just unemployed and maybe they can't get a job and so they just decide to stay at home with their kids. I would probably argue that stay-at-home moms probably work more than women with careers. And all the moms said, amen. <laughs> right? But here, here's what it's saying. I think a lot of times, maybe even in our culture, we can kind of put, we can kind of esteem those the, the women who have amazing careers, and yet somehow women who are in full time uh, taking care of their family and taking care of their children are somehow not esteemed or valued as women who work, right? It's, to, it's, for, the, it's, it's, a, it's for the mom and the, the wife who had this amazing career and, and, and maybe she felt like a somebody in the world, like she's making a difference, you know, and she's got degrees and she's, she's got titles and she's got positions in the workplace and she's got people that work under her and for her and she's doing great and there's a lot of success and so it makes her feel like a somebody and all of a sudden now she's got children and kind of has no other choice but to stay at home and, and take care of her children and, and all of a sudden may feel like now I went from a somebody to a nobody and what Titus chapter 2 is trying to teach us that you didn't go from a somebody to a nobody. You were always a somebody in God. And when you, when you raise your children, when you work at home, meaning taking care of your family and taking care of your, your children, that doesn't decrease your value. To God, that is of great value to work at home. But the point is this. It says in the following in verse four, that the word of God may not be reviled. The word of God may not be reviled. In other words, it's cautioning these, these women to not 
dive into the cultural tendencies of the day and say, well, well we get to, we, you know, just to experience uh, uh, liberties and freedoms that actually, that actually causing damage to the word of God. That's what it's saying, right? And then it goes on and it says, um, be kind and, and be submissive to their own husbands. Again, I'm gonna pause there because that in itself, said the word submissive has cultural sensitivity. But you know what's interesting is that if, if you were someone uh, living 2,000 years ago and you, and you were to hear these words from Titus, you know what the woman would put focus on? They would not put focus on the word submissive. That's what modern culture would put focus on because oh, I don't know, I don't, I don't believe in being submissive. I don't believe in submitting. But 2,000 years ago, that's, that's not where the focus would be. The focus would be to their own husbands. Because what they were experiencing in their day was these women who, a cultural movement of having all kinds of certain liberties, even, even sexual liberties that lead them to promiscuity, causing damage to their homes, their husband, their families. And so Paul includes that a Christian life that follows the Cretan culture damages the reputation of God's word. It damages the reputation of God's word. This is in the context, and that's why it's, it's, it's good to, to, to affirm passages like this that, that may be confusing or, or hard to receive. You, you gotta confirm it and, and affirm it with other passages in scripture. When you read Ephesians 5, this, that word submissive and submit to your husbands is in the context of, of marriage where, where the wives ought to submit to their husbands. It's not talking about wives as being inferior. It's just talking about having some kind of order in the family, a way in which the family can, can work together to the glory of God and to the good of their marriage. And, and, and before, before women get all kind of hung up on that word submissive, you ought to look at what the husband Husbands are called to do. In fact, Ephesians 5, the, the list of what husbands ought to do is a lot longer than the wives. The husbands ought to love their wife as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He died. He died for them. So husbands, your role is to sacrifice and to die daily so that your wife can be loved. And then for the wife to be able to, with that picture in mind together, then to be able to submit and follow the lead of your husband. And I think even for me, you know, when I was reading this, I'm like, ah, this is so hard to even receive for myself and and I don't know how it's gonna come off. And I think one of the things that I think God was teaching me is, is to just share the word of God and teach the people of God that they have to be able to discern what is the spirit of the age and what is the spirit of the Lord. Do we, do we, do we look at the word of God and say, ah, oh, that's outdated. Man, the whole submissive, the whole that, that thing, bond servants, that's just, that's like 2,000 years. That, that's, just, that's just outdated. That's, that, that's just optional stuff. So the question is, do we, do we update the word of God based on the culture? Or should the culture be updated and upgraded based on the unchanging word of God? We cannot let our cultural and embedded you know, beliefs dictate what parts of the scripture we're gonna just read and, and live by. We go to the word and say, God, 
How can I align myself to the word of God so that when others look at my life, they see the word of God as true and credible and beautiful, right? And then in verse six, it it addresses the younger men. And I know there's a lot of younger men here, so listen to this. Likewise, urge the younger men Right to be self-controlled, uh, to be self-controlled, and then verse seven. This is now to Titus. Right, uh, Paul is addressing him directly. He says, "Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, have nothing evil to say about us." So that one. So so he's saying, Titus, live in such a way where you're a mo- such a model of godliness and good works that they they when they look at your life. Man, they just, there's really nothing bad to say, which actually then attracts them to what you believe, right? Verse 9, bond servants, right? Or, or in other words, slaves. The Greek word is doulos, are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they uh, may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. The word here, bond servants or slaves, again, could be culturally sensitive to us, but this, let me tell you, it's not talking about our modern understanding of more recent history of slavery. This is not talking about the kind of slave-master relationship that we read about in elementary school in the history books. This is pointing back 2,000 years ago in a different context, and when you begin to study scholarship and commentaries on what that relationship was like, they all say that it's a lot more like the relationship between employer and employee in today's day. And so one of the ways that we can understand that better is that even Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter of Titus, actually calls himself a slave. He calls himself a bondservant. He calls himself in the Greek a doulos of God. Now if that word doulos or bondservant or slave was a derogatory word, why would he use that word in terms of identifying himself to God. It's because they don't see that word slave the way a lot of us might see that word slave today. See, he sees bondservant not in itself as bad, but only bad, right, or only negative depending on, listen to this, depending on who your master is. So if you are a slave to God, that's a wonderful thing. That's Paul. So Paul is joyful. He's not saying, oh, I'm, I'm a bondservant to God. He's saying, I'm a bondservant. I get to serve God because my master, and I say that joyfully because my master is good. But nowadays, you know, when we, when just, we just use the word slave, it's just already, it's just derogatory, it's negative, but you gotta understand when it's using the word bondservant, it wasn't about like that kind of uh, understanding we know about today, it's about who is your master because it, it could have been a very positive thing. And so what this is talking about is here is, is uh, in relation to, to bondservants uh, who actually work under masters who are not believers. And so they're gonna be watching their, the lives of their employees or their bond servants or their doulasses. They're gonna watch them. And so, so Paul is encouraging them, have them live such good lives, right? To be submissive to their own masters and everything, right? Is basically to, to be people that are, uh, uh, um, have this measurement of acceptable service. They're well-pleasing. They're not argumentative. They're not the kind of employees 
that will talk back to their, to, to, to their supervisors or to their boss. They're not the ones to challenge them or to, uh, um, or to, or to, to you know, contradict uh, what they're told to do, but they, they're people that are um, reliable. They're people that are trustworthy. And so verse 10 says, not pilfering. It was, it was, it was common for, for uh, slaves in that day to have selfish gain and, and to steal even from the house. And so saying, don't be that kind of worker. Be one who is showing good faith, trustworthy, reliable, so that in everything that your life can adorn the doctrine of God or Savior. I find it a beautiful thing that God would include people who they may have considered lower class, that God doesn't see them as lower class to him. He sees them as people that can be used to the glory of God. He sees, he sees the people at the, maybe in the bottom of the work class and he says they, they are important to the glory of God. They are important to bringing nations to me. I want to just encourage you because you might, you might be there, you're an employee and you, you've, got employee, you've got an employer, you've got supervisors, you've got people above you. This ought to speak into your life and how we go about our work, that, that it doesn't matter if you're not a CEO yet, it doesn't matter if you haven't climbed up the ladder yet. Let me just tell you this, that God sees you as important to the glory of God. That God can use you, even if you're in, in the bottom of the work, even at the bottom of the company, God wants to use you to draw people to himself. That your life may adorn the doctrine of God. So as you read Titus chapter two, here's, what, here's a couple things that we see real quick. One is that each group has its own unique challenges. There's things that older uh, men and, and older women and younger men and younger women will face and be challenged by and not to think about and not to come before God with. Number two is this, that between the groups, here's what we see, that, that what Paul is, is not trying to do is he's not trying to separate them in the church. In fact, what we see is Paul trying to bring them together in the church. Older men ought to be models, examples for younger men. And how are you to be a model and example if you're never in their life? See, what, what, what Paul desires for the church is that in the church, older men ought to be around younger men too, where, where the younger men ought to be able to have the shared life experience with older men that through time they can see a model, a picture, a show, not just tell, a, a, a shoe book diagram of what a godly life looks like. And then for the older one, woman to teach the younger woman, this is not, just the, this is not really about a formal pulpit preaching because it's actually talking about everyone should be models and everyone should be able to be an example by teaching. This is talking about teach them through your life. I, I think this is specifically talking about uh, um, kind of this shared life experiences that you guys have together through small groups and just maybe even one-on-ones. And it's not saying call it, it doesn't say call it discipleship, call it mentorship. That's not important. What you call it is not important. I think in our day, churches get too caught up in calling something and saying, I want, I want to be in discipleship. I want to be in mentorship. Right? The important thing is this, that in the church, older men and younger men ought to be together. Amen? And older women and younger women ought to be together. Here, here's, here's what I know about myself. 
is that as I experienced different life stages, going from a single man, once a younger man maybe, to then married, and then from being married to then being a dad, here's what I noticed about myself. There is a natural drift in my own heart to want to just be around people of the same life stage. Amen by myself. That like, you know, once I turn like 35, I'm like, I don't want to hang out with 25-year-olds because we think we know so much more. We think we just can't relate anymore. And you know, when you become married, then you just start to, you just want to hang out with married people. When you become a dad, you just want to hang out with dads. And there, there's, there's a connection there. And I think that there's a, there's a healthy place for that connection to happen. But we must be intentional, church, because we're one body about making sure that we're not isolating older men from the younger men, amen? And older woman from the younger woman. What I see in Titus chapter two is the integration of everyone in the church coming together, being models and, and teaching and leading them to a life where others can, can be drawn to the good news of the gospel. We also see that one of the words or phrases that keeps occurring here, and, uh, regardless of gender or regardless of age, is that they ought to be self-controlled. And I just, I wanted to point this out because I think it's, there's a, there's, there's a reason why the word self-control or, or the phrase self-control keeps appearing over and over again to the elders in chapter one, to have self-control. Teach the older men, self-control, verse two in chapter two. Uh, urge the younger woman, verse four through five. Encourage the young men, in verse Six, why is self-control so important? It's because our lives are often driven by our emotions. We ought to feel emotions, but that doesn't give us a license to act upon every emotion. Our lives are not to be driven by our every emotion. And so to have self-control is not to deny our emotions, right? But to put our emotions under control. I think as we read Titus 2, we ought to ask ourselves that question for men and women. Do we control our emotions or do our emotions control us? Tim Chester in his book on Titus says that Western culture values self-expression instead of self-control, self-fulfillment instead of self-denial, and independence instead of submission. And I think Titus is calling us to examine where we are, to see the effect of what God can have on us, to see the life that we have been delivered and saved from, and then to see this picture of a beautiful and a good life that God wants to bring us to. As I close, as I close, I want to pose this question, the question that you might be asking through all this is, how do I get there? How do I live that life? How, I, how do I get myself to be self-controlled? How do I get myself to be kind or, or pure? How do I get myself to be respectable? How do I get myself to live that kind of life where people can be attracted to the gospel? And I want to tell you this, that there is not one person here that can do it apart from God, which is why Titus doesn't end in verse 10. When you go on to verse 11, and we're going to just, I'm just going to bring this before you all, and we're going to unpack it next week for you, but it says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. How do we live, verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10? It's by the grace of 
God. This, in other words, is a life that has been marked by the grace of God. In other words, these are qualities that do not come naturally to us for men and women. It doesn't come naturally to us. But when the grace of God appears, God can change a life. For the grace of God has appeared. I love what Pastor David Platt says. He says that there is, there is no command God calls us to live that he doesn't enable us to do. See, every single one of these qualities for the man and the woman that there is grace for you. He says the only way you can get there is by the grace of God. And so when people look at your life, you know what they're really drawn to is not your action. What they're really drawn to is the grace of God. Would you bow with me?